You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast. The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival in any life-threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Join me each week as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you can hear the sound of my voice, it means you're still alive and it's my continued mission to keep it that way. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? I am your host, Cade Courtley. Folks, buckle in for this next guest, all right? The intro alone is going to blow you away. I'm going to have to read it because it's incredible. Our next guest is an American-born NASA astronaut that holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Biology from Brown University, a Master's of Science and Space Studies from the International Space University and a doctorate in marine biology from Scripps Institute of Oceanography, my old stomping grounds there in San Diego. She worked for Lockheed Martin's Human Research Facility supporting human physiology research. During this time, she also participated in research flights on NASA's reduced gravity aircraft and served as an aquanaut and an underwater habitat for NASA's Extreme Environment Mission Operations, NEMO. She most recently served as flight engineer on the International Space Station for Expedition 61 and 62, during which she conducted the first three all-woman spacewalks with crewmate Christina Koch of NASA, totaling 21 hours and 44 minutes. And she has spent 205 days in space to include... 3,280 orbits of the Earth and has traveled 86.9 million miles in space. I've never felt like more of an underachiever in my life. Folks, please welcome Dr. Jessica Mir. Doc, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Cade. That's quite an intro, so I'll try to live up to all of that. It's wonderful to be here speaking to you today. Well, I got to get right to it. You have seen and done things that that many people in the world will ever be able to do. I need for you to explain to me and our audience a spacewalk, that first one. Just it blows me. I cannot conceptualize what that's like. So please help out. Yeah, for me, I wanted to be an astronaut since I was five years old and made that dream come true by getting to space. But the image that I always had was doing a spacewalk. So that was really my ultimate goal, even beside just getting from space. And that was actually what I wrote in my high school yearbook, that my future plans were to go for a spacewalk. So I can say that I checked that one off now. It's very difficult to put into words, actually, what it feels like. It's just something that I had thought so much about. And that feeling of, aside of just looking outside of the space station back at Earth, you're now in your own little self-contained spaceship. You have your life support system. You have everything that you need to survive, and it's really just you. Of course, you're out there with your buddy, as I was out there with Christina Cook, 
but you still are reliant upon all of the life support functions of that spacesuit. Just like I'm sure you're familiar, you know, kind of like scuba diving, you have all the equipment that you need and you're in this other world. And so that's the thing that makes a spacewalk so special. It's just being out there in your own little self-contained spacecraft. And I'll never forget that first time coming out of the hatch. So Christina and I, on that first one, she had done a spacewalk before, and I had only been up there for about two weeks. She'd been up there for several months already. So she was EV1, meaning she would be out of the hatch first, and the first person goes head first, and then the second person comes out feet first. So on that first spacewalk, pretty much everybody comes out feet first. She's already outside and I get the go to egress, as we say in NASA speak. That means the hatch is open. She's out there. She's in a good position out of the way and ready for me to come out. So I start kind of shimmying back and getting a few bags ready that we need to pass out. And then I come out and it's daylight. You know, it might be daylight. It might be night that we're coming out. But in this case, it was daylight. So I could very clearly see this brilliant blue ball kind of spinning beneath us. And you come out and you look and I look down and I see my feet and then nothing else but the <laughs> earth below. And that sense of motion when you're in the spacesuit, you feel it a lot more than if you're just looking out the window in the space station. You can get that sense of motion a little bit if you kind of go to the window and press your face up real close, kind of try to feel what it would feel like during the spacewalk. But you definitely do feel that more. And I wasn't sure how I would react. Kind of knowing how I usually react to situations like skydiving or extreme scuba diving in the Antarctic or stuff like that, where some people might get their heart rate up a little bit. I usually don't have that kind of fear response, but I didn't know what it would be like for this because, of course, it was completely novel. And several people, you know, we talk to our colleagues, we try to really prepare ourselves for whatever might happen. And it is actually pretty surprising sometimes when people tell you that they were terrified. You know, they're still able to go out and get the job done and be successful, but inside they did really feel terrified. They Some people feel this sense of falling when they look down and see the earth. So I didn't really know how my mind and body would react, but I actually didn't have any of those feelings. I just had this instant awe, you know, looking down, seeing that there was nothing between the earth and my boots. And just thinking, wow, it's actually happening. And then, as I'm sure you're very familiar with your previous career, then you just snap into action because you've spent so much time training and you have so much muscle memory all built mm -hmm. up. And of course, I had never done a spacewalk in space, but I've spent hundreds of hours in that spacesuit on the ground training in the pool that we have, the neutral buoyancy lab, where we have a whole mock-up, a one-to-one size model of the space station, and we're in the suit. So I knew I had to focus and just rely on that muscle memory to just start off and to avoid thinking about things too much because we had to get down and get to business. This was a contingency spacewalk, an unplanned one. So we really only had about 48 hours to figure out what we needed to do. And it was a piece of equipment that's vital to the power system, the power channels in the space station. So we needed to get to work and get the job done. And one of the things I think that's just really present in everything that we do as astronauts, we rely on this top-notch training that we have. We spend most of our careers training so that we eliminate any of those other factors about, you know, what do I do here? So much of it is just muscle memory. And of course, you still need to be able to react to an unknown situation. And we're ready for that in other types of training that we do. But in the spacesuit, I'd spent hundreds of hours using the tools, knowing all the interfaces. And so we just kind of started going about exactly the way I would have done things in the pool. And I've done it that way hundreds of times, just, of course, 
lot of differences now because there's no gravity. There's still gravity underwater. And then Christina and I just started the job to get it done. And, And that's one of the things about doing a spacewalk. It really is the most challenging thing that we do as astronauts, both mentally and physically. And so you have to be concentrating the entire time. You're out there dealing with incredibly expensive pieces of equipment and limited ones. You know, we had to replace this spare battery discharge unit during that spacewalk to save that power channel. But there really were very, very limited spares on board. So if we damaged it, you know, the whole thing would have gone out the window. And so there's a lot of pressure and a lot of really self-imposed pressure too, because you know how fortunate you are to be the one up there to be doing that job. And so many people are relying on you that I think the biggest fear. I didn't have any kind of fear of anything else during that spacewalk, except for that fear that I think a lot of astronauts will say, the fear of making a mistake. Sure. You just don't want to make a mistake. Well, after you did what we were supposed to do, did you give yourself just a minute to sort of take it in? Like, okay, mission accomplished, let's get back in, but I'm going to take a second here. We did. I hope you did. Yeah, I did try to do that. And it's something that we, the vets that are on the space station or people that have done spacewalks before you go out your first time, will always remind each other of that. Just take that one moment, whenever it is, and appreciate what you're doing to really kind of revel in it and remember it. And Christina and I both were able to take a couple of those moments. And fortunately, you know, I didn't just do one, I had three. So I had more opportunities to do that, especially after that first one, you know, you feel a little bit more comfortable because you know what to expect finally. So we did. There were some moments where, especially in the second and third spacewalks where I took a lot more photos, we have cameras out there with us. And there were some times when I was positioned in this, what we call the APFR, it's a foot restraint. So it keeps you very, very stable if you have to move something really heavy or maintain that stable position. And so I had a great vantage point when I was in that foot restraint, looking back at the earth. And there were even some sunrises and sunsets that I captured in the camera and looking down at Christina in a different position with the earth behind her and some pretty incredible views. So those images will definitely last forever in my mind and in those photos as well. Oh, it's incredible. The way you described leaving the space station, you were basically born into space. It's wild. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's discuss the Artemis program. Now, for anybody who's a fan of Greek mythology, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo the goddess of the moon. Now, NASA is committed to landing American astronauts on the moon in, I believe, 2021. Is that accurate? What the statement has been for having boots on the moon as this administration and NASA administrator have voice are boots on the moon by 2024. So we'll see what happens. That is an ambitious project, of course, but that's kind of the track that has been laid out for us. And the great news is we have already been well at work in what it's going to take to get us there. The interesting thing about the Artemis program, as you mentioned with the name, the goal is to really send the first woman to the surface of the moon and the next man. So a very exciting prospect that we'll have women on the moon as well. But I think for us as astronauts, it's all about just getting us back there. And we have a very diverse astronaut office now. So it's surely that we all will be represented as we should be. Well, I'm rooting for you. I tell you what, since there's been a space program, there have always been those who have said, well, we've done that already. Why are we going to spend more money doing it again? Would you say that going back to the moon is kind of like training camp for Mars? Yeah, absolutely. That is a good way to put it. And I think everybody in our office does understand and believe that the right thing to do is to first go back to the moon as a stepping stone to going to Mars. 
So when we went to the moon in the 60s and 70s, we were decades ahead. Technology-wise, we wouldn't have gotten there that early. But of course, we had a very strong motivator. We had the Cold War and the space race. And because there was that strong political motivation, Congress was willing to invest that kind of money. And everybody was really, really pushing to get the job done. If it weren't for that political motivation, I certainly don't think we would have gotten there as early as we did. But we had it and we made it happen. And it was an incredibly exciting time. We have not been on the moon now since the 70s. It's been decades since then. It was entirely different technology. And going to the moon is not easy. Just because we did it before doesn't mean it's easy. You know, right now on the International Space Station, we've been up there for 20 years of a continuous human presence for 20 years. But that's only about 250 miles above us. The moon is 250,000 miles away. So we're talking extreme orders of magnitude here. It's not a simple task. So the idea is that by going back to the moon, first of all, that in itself is very interesting scientifically. There's a lot that we don't know. We would be going to different areas that were unexplored before. So scientifically, we would make a big contribution. But secondly, it will really be used as kind of a stepping stone and proving ground for going further to make that next step toward Mars. We even have this whole gateway system that would be this kind of orbiting laboratory around the moon where we could then go down and make excursions to the surface of the moon and then eventually use that as a launching point to go forward toward Mars. So if you look at it as this kind of incremental stepping stones, it makes complete sense that we should go to the moon first, demonstrate that capacity and all of those technologies, and then take that next step. Now we're talking 39 million miles away. So again, a huge leap. And of course, going to the Mars, now we're talking about a six-month mission to get there. Six months back, you'll probably spend a good amount of time there. So that would be a three-year mission. So we still have a lot to learn to bring that to fruition. I need to ask you a favor. When you become the first woman to step on the moon, will you please take a picture of something that was left up there in the 70s so all the conspiracy folks (laughs) can go away? Could you please do that? Absolutely. We'll make that promise. Yeah, I will. That woman, you know, it's not up to me, but I would love to play a role. Hopefully, I will be able to play a role in the Artemis mission in some way. It is definitely what we are working on in the office now. It's going to be that next great step. If you could, in two sentences, tell people this is why we're going to the moon, you kind of already covered it based on a stepping stone, but for somebody who's maybe in charge of budgets and you said, okay, I've got two sentences to convince this person, what would you say to that person? Yeah, I think I would say that we are going back to the moon for science and for progress. You know, I think it's an inherent part of us as humans to explore. We never would have explored the rest of this planet and discovered all the continents if we didn't have that drive. So I think for basic science, for exploration, and for that next step as a stepping stone getting to Mars and for demonstrating our capability again as an exploring and spacefaring nation. Uh, I think it'd be amazing. I heard a great story, and maybe you can tell me if you've heard this or not, but Neil Armstrong, I believe, was at a party at a barbecue in somebody's backyard, and he was kind of surrounded by a bunch of guys, and they were trying to one-up him about, oh, I did this in the stock market, I was in the Olympics, and apparently he just pointed at the moon and said, yeah, I was up there, and just sort of stepped away. (laughs) (laughs) His drop-the-mic moment, I guess you could say. Describe for me survival in space, workout routines, muscle atrophy, space pathogens, I believe early on the space program, 
they didn't know if we were going to be able to survive without gravity. Yeah, absolutely. During those first programs, a lot of medical personnel and physiologists, they really didn't know what's going to happen to the human body without gravity. Will you be able to swallow? Will you be able to eat? You know, will you be able to digest food? All of these things were completely unanswered. And so now, of course, we have decades of physiology research. And that's one of the areas I'm interested in the most. My background actually was as a physiologist and extreme physiology of animals. And I did actually work at NASA supporting those experiments earlier in my career. So it's kind of full circle now where I went from supporting those experiments at NASA, doing experiments on diving and high-flying animals, and now I'm the one in the extreme environment, and I'm the subject and the guinea pig. But I'm very happy to pay that forward and to get some more data. So you touched on two of the big ones that we often think about with space, bone loss and muscle atrophy. So as soon as you go to space, your bones will actually start leaching calcium because you don't have the external loading of gravity. So you and I are sitting here right now, we're not exercising, but our bones and muscles are still very active. All those postural muscles, everything is still reacting to this omnipresent gravitational vector that's pushing us down. And that keeps our bones and muscles healthy even when we're not exercising. So if you go to space and you don't have that anymore, you need to do something to offset that or you'll have a very big loss of bone density and then also muscle atrophy. So luckily, with all that research, and we've been able to develop some really great exercise equipment on the space station now, we have three main devices on the space station in the American segment, and they are crucial to maintaining that bone density and muscle mass and keeping us healthy. And now we actually bring astronauts back pretty much equivalent to baseline in terms of muscle mass. I came back with more muscle mass. You know, we were actually lifting weights every day. And so I lift weights a lot on earth too, but maybe not every day. And also we're not kind of sitting on the couch and drinking beer. So that probably helps us out a lot as well. But we have a device called the ARED, the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, and it is an incredible machine. It uses vacuum tubes to generate the force. Mm -hmm so that you can lift weights, because of course, how do you lift weights and weights when everything's weightless? So these vacuum tubes generate that resistance, and you can configure this piece of hardware in a bunch of different ways. It is only fixed to structure at two points, and then everything kind of moves. There's a big platform, there's a bar, just like you have at a gym, so you can do squats and deadlifts and shoulder presses and bench presses. I mean, about, I think, 25 different types of exercise. So just like going to the gym, you can really exercise every muscle. And that is the most important for that loading of the mm -hmm. bones. Then we also want to get more of a cardiovascular workout in as well to help maintain our cardiovascular system. So we have a treadmill and we have sort of a backpacking harness that we wear and that's attached with some chains and then bungees to the treadmill surface because obviously we'd float away if we were just trying to run on a treadmill. So that pulls you down. And then we also have a cycle ergometer. So you clip in your bike shoes, but it's microgravity. So you don't need a seat and you don't need handlebars. You just kind of pedal away. So we actually exercise every day. We have two and a half hours of exercise in our schedule. That also accounts for getting set up and then showering before you go on to your next task. But it's that important that we have to get that two and a half hours. It's actually a flight rule that they have to schedule it for us every day up there. And in doing so, it's really worked. We're bringing people back in very good condition now. We're offsetting all of those losses. What's going to be really interesting for the future is that even though these pieces of equipment are incredibly useful and effective, they're also very, very large. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about going to Mars and you're talking about a three-year mission, we can't use the same types of 
machines that we've developed right now. So NASA and other companies are working on something that's more compact that we could bring on a long duration mission like that for a small volume, but that would still accomplish the same kind of thing. And that's a really difficult task. So if anyone listening has some great ideas on that one, I think NASA would definitely welcome that. Maybe bungee cords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you kind of answered already, but I was going to ask you, hey, what does your body feel like when you return to Earth after a prolonged stay? But the way you described it, adjustment reacclimation probably doesn't take that long, I would imagine. Or it's got to be weird that when you start feeling gravity again after being out there that long. It is. Yeah. I actually think it's pretty interesting as a biologist and a physiologist because we've adapted the entire human species has evolved in 1G. So you would think we would always feel comfortable here. And when you leave and go to space, maybe that should be the difficult thing. But most people actually find coming back physically harder on the body. There is a thing called space motion sickness. Some people do get a bit ill in that transition going to space. And that's because the vestibular system and everything you know, inside our inner ear, some of that stuff does rely on gravity. So your vestibular system goes a little bit haywire when you remove that and suddenly you're in weightlessness. Coming back, you have a different kind of transition. Your blood goes back down again. Your vestibular system's going haywire again because it's been adapted. I was up there, as you mentioned, for almost seven months. So my body is used to it now, and I come back. And I'll tell you, even though bone density-wise and muscle mass-wise, I was fine, and in general, I was one of the lucky ones that felt relatively good, you still feel pretty crappy. You can literally feel gravity pushing down on you because your body's just not used to having that. So you kind of feel like maybe if you had a bully or an older brother or something that would put their hand (laughs) on your head and and smush you down and kind of press you down into the floor, you kind of feel like that for a while. And some people, you know, your stomach's upset for a little while if you make any quick head movements because of that vestibular system Mm -hmm. adapting again. And it does take some time After the first few days, most of that stuff goes a little bit back to normal and you feel like you're walking normally. But when you first land, you kind of look like a drunken sailor kind of moving around. Hey, easy on the drunken sailor. (laughs) (laughs) As everything tries to get used to things again. But then there's another transition where, okay, you feel comfortable walking after a few days, but running feels really weird. And I think that's because it's this more complex motor neuron. And so I remember running for the first time. I was with my trainer in the gym doing our kind of rehab. The upward motion felt normal, but then coming down, I felt like an elephant landing. And it was just weird to get that stability. Then that kind of comes back. But I had a little bit of back pain. Most people have that since, you know, your vertebrae have been stretched out in space. I think it was about three months, actually, until I felt completely normal. But you feel pretty good after a few weeks. This is maybe more of a philosophical question for you. But do you think there will be a time when humans need to expand into space for the survival of the human race? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, we certainly do seem to be doing a pretty good job of destroying the one planet that we have right now. So that's something that's always been important to me and even more important, I think, to people when they come back from space, having having seen it from that vantage point. So I don't know. I mean, I think this is something that philosophers, going back to Stolkovsky, this Russian philosopher who talked about the humanization and cosmicization of space, how we needed to kind of like I was saying earlier, just keep expanding as humans. That's what we do. So our nature, it should be natural for us to want to just keep expanding and to go out into the cosmos. And I don't know that we'll get there necessarily in our lifetimes. You know, certainly if we want to get a colony going on the moon, and then even eventually on Mars, I think that could happen if the right level of expenditure and interest is there politically. 
but will we need to? My hope is that we don't need to because I really hope that we can try to do a little bit better in taking care of the one planet that we have. And I don't think that we'll ever find another place that can support the life the way that we have evolved like the Earth can. So I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what's in store in the future. With the inclusion of private companies like SpaceX, do you see a time, maybe in the not-so-distant future, where humans will be going up to space almost like maybe hopping on a flight to Los Angeles? Yeah, I hope so. And I think companies like SpaceX and Boeing and Virgin, they're all different variations in terms of making space more accessible to other people. So as you know, I'm sure you watched the SpaceX launch just recently. So we now can launch humans from the U.S. again, which is a great thing. I flew on a Russian spacecraft. I love that experience. And we continue to collaborate with the Russians. They are incredible partners for us in the International Space Station. But of course, that's great for us as a country to have that capability again. And not even just for our country, really for the entire planet. It means that we now have another spacecraft that has been built that can bring humans to space. And so each of these things, I think, is helping make space more accessible. You have these other companies that are increasing other types of space tourism. Maybe they're not launching somebody to the International Space Station, but maybe it's a suborbital flight, something that can give people another vantage point, kind of looking back at the planet and almost feeling like they're getting there. There are a lot of ideas and a lot of companies that are doing things like that right now. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing because it is such a privilege to have been one of the few people that have been up there. And I just wish that I could share it with everybody and that as many people as possible can have that chance to see the earth from above with your own eyes. It's just such a powerful thing. Space is fascinating and so much is unknown, but then there's a whole world of unknown right here that we barely know about in the depths of the ocean. Now you are also an aquanaut and you spent, I believe it was five days, four miles under the surface of the ocean. Talk to me about that experience. Yeah. So that was part of the NEMO mission, the NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. And it's one of the analog environments that we have. It's a great thing for astronaut training and also for scientific objectives. If you want to try to train astronauts or to prepare people for a mission, how do you train for that? Obviously, you can't replicate everything, all of the factors that we have in space. So we try to find environments that represent some of those unique characteristics. So maybe you're living in a small environment that you need a life support system to go outside because you're underwater. You're living in close confines with your crewmates. You're working on a mission timeline. All things very similar to being in space. And this habitat is the Aquarius habitat. It's off of Key Largo, and it's not four miles down. It's actually only about 45 feet down but it's still saturation diving. So you never come up to the surface. You know, I'm sure you're very well familiar with decompression sickness and your tissues being saturated with nitrogen. When you come up and the pressure is alleviated, that's when they can come out of solution and cause you problems. But if you stay deep, if you stay at that depth, even if your tissues are 100% saturated, it can't come out of solution, so you're going to be okay. So that's the idea behind that saturation diving, where we could live in this underwater habitat. And as long as we didn't go up in between, we could still stay safe, do daily excursions, diving, test out equipment, you know, use it as a parallel. It was supposed to be a 10-day mission, but we were actually there in the middle of hurricane season. So oh, we lovely. got pulled out early. Yeah. I was actually really lucky. That was before I was an astronaut. It was when I was working there as a scientist. And I did that mission with two astronauts, Scott Kelly, whom a lot of people know that name now, and Rex Walheim, and then a flight director, Paul Hill. And we had an incredible crew. It was a lot of fun. 
NASA has another analog called CAVES that I can talk to you about too. That's, I think, another great way to train astronauts. And this is a caving system in Sardinia that was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. But those kind of scenarios, you know, using that kind of highly technical equipment like diving, they really prepare you for the mindset of what it's like to be in space. And even more importantly, perhaps now, those soft skills, what we call the expeditionary skills of working with your teammates, followership, leadership, demonstrating those skills of team care and self-care, those things are increasingly more important when we're on these long-duration missions. And I'm sure you can attest to that too, who you're there with, who your buddies are, and who your teammates are could make for a vastly different experience, not just for you, for your own happiness, but for mission success too. Absolutely. I mean, back to my earlier question, do you think we should spend more time and energy and money towards trying to see what's below the surface of the ocean as well as going out to the moon and beyond and to Mars? Yes, absolutely. So I went to an oceanography graduate mm-hmm. school. I studied the diving physiology of marine mammals and birds. And there are so many types of underwater science that are still relatively underfunded and underexplored. You, know, you hear that quote a lot, oh, we know more about life outside of our planet versus in the depths of our oceans. And some people do try to be contrarians in that realm and say, well, why do we give NASA all this money? We need to explore our planet. I would argue, yes, exploring our planet and the oceans is equally as important. We absolutely should do it. It doesn't need to come from the NASA budget. There are a lot of other sources that could be used and both should be funded equally because they're both very, very important. So yes, I think that we should be spending more in scientific research of the oceans. So much in my previous work, so many of my colleagues, incredibly valuable scientific research in exploring the rest of our planet as well. Very important. You've been in both extreme environments. Which one do you think is more dangerous or which one do you feel like maybe you were a little bit more nervous being in? That's a good question. You know, I think some of my most extreme time underwater on this planet was when I was scuba diving in the Antarctic. So I had that privilege of diving down there. And that is, if you ever have the opportunity to do it, I highly recommend it because it is so special. When you're diving in the Antarctic, you're used to this white, austere environment. You know, there's no color in life on the surface. But when you go through the ice and plunge down below, that's where all the color in life is. You have gigantism. Things are bigger because of the surface area to volume ratio, keeping organisms alive and warm. So you have big, vibrant sponges and bright red sea stars and big yellow pictogonids. And you're using a dry suit. So you know you're using more technical equipment. You have to have the right kind of regulator because the water is negative two Celsius, 28 Fahrenheit. Most regulators would just free flow. You have an overhead ice environment. So, you know, first rule of scuba diving, if something goes wrong, what do you do? You know, come to the surface, I guess, except for if you're in maybe one of your missions, you might not want to do that either. But um, <laughs> well, it's kind of, <laughs> am I going to get shot or am I going to embolize? I don't know which one's going to be worse, drown. <laughs> right. I didn't have to worry about getting shot when I was in the Antarctic. But <laughs> when you come through a hole in the ice, mm-hmm. you don't have any other exit points. Yeah. And sometimes there's a seal in your exit point. And it never happens to me, but I've had friends have changing ice conditions where suddenly you know, they couldn't get out where they needed to. And now there's six, nine feet of ice frozen everywhere they are. So it can be a pretty hostile environment and place to dive. But I think going to space is certainly more of a risk because, of course, even to get out into the vacuum of space, you have to strap yourself on the top of a rocket and look at the record of the space shuttle. There is risk involved in everything that we do. Certainly, as I'm sure you'd agree, you know, I don't think that there's any reward without taking those kind of risks. Sure. 
So I would say inherently space is riskier, but I never really looked at it that way or felt afraid for my life. And I think that's, again, because of this incredible training that we have. We believe in our equipment. We're very familiar with it. We have hundreds and thousands of people on the ground in Houston and all over the world that have trained us, that are watching every move, that are keeping us safe. And so to me, it's that level of, it's not really risk, it's controlled risk, at least. It's something that you, know, you have taken all the actions to mitigate that risk. And so you feel comfortable with what you're undertaking. Well, you kind of answered half my next question. With all your training, your education, your experiences, you know, you've spent a lot of time in the most hostile environments in the universe. And I don't think you fear death necessarily. Would you say to yourself, if this happens to me, it was worth it because I was doing things and I experienced things that 99.99% of the people in the world never will? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think just like you said, it's not something that personally I think about when I was launching or when I was landing or in any of those experiences. Of course, there's a possibility things can always go wrong, but we know that that's just something that I've accepted as part of the job for sure. I'm jealous. I am super jealous if I could do it over again. I hopefully would be on the other side of this interview, but so proud and so impressed. And we're rooting for you to get to the moon and be there as the first female to step down on that surface. It would be awesome. Please send that picture for all the conspiracy folks. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Hey, there are um, several Navy SEAL turned astronauts, so maybe it's not too late for you. Well, I need to find a time machine, unfortunately, unless there's <laughs> a seniors program at NASA. Then I'm all about no it. There's no age limit either, so <laughs> you never know. Jessica, we do something on the show called Hypothetical Survival World. And basically what I'm going to do, and this is a tough one because of everything you've done. So folks, bear with me. We're going to go a little bit into some fiction land here, but we're still going to try and throw you into a life-threatening scenario. And we're going to see how you do. You'll have 10 events. And on each one of those events, you get to choose an A or you choose a B for an option. If you choose the right one, you get plus 10 points. And if you choose the wrong one, it's a minus 10 points. Any question before I throw you into your hypothetical survival world? Okay, I think I'm ready. Oh, I know you're ready, but let's have some fun with this one as well. All right, so you've earned some very, very well-deserved downtime, and you decided to go on a road trip. So we're a few days into a road trip in Colorado. You're enjoying lunch at a small roadside diner. When you receive a text on your phone from somebody you know that works at NORAD, and it simply says missiles inbound. Any questions before we get started? Okay, this is a little bit of a too much of real life here. I was just in Colorado hiking with my sister for my downtime. I'm on vacation right now, even so. Okay, I didn't get that call from NORAD though. So That's good. That's good because if you did, then we're touching new ground here. This just in. All right, so here we go. Take a look. Again, you're in a small roadside diner. Do you shelter in place or do you head your vehicle? Okay, so I know that the missiles are inbound, but they haven't given me any sort of time scale on this. That's all you got. Okay. And you were probably lucky just to get that text. Okay. I think I'm going to say stay put. We don't know how long they could be inbound at any minute, so I think it's going to be best to seek shelter right where I am since I do have some kind of structure around me. Try to find the most stable area I can. If there's some kind of metal or concrete would be even better structure, bench or table or something like that inside. I would try to get down and get into a good position to protect my organs. You know, this kind of triangle 
type safety bracing position. So yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go stay where I am. Absolutely. And you nailed it with the part about you do not know how far out they are. You know, if you had, hey, missiles inbound four hours, that's a whole different deal. But you don't have that information. So you're going to shelter in place in this little roadside cafe. You see the reflection of a bright light in the distance, followed by what is a thermal blast wave. All right. You estimate after the blast wave has passed that it didn't cause a whole lot of damage. So it's probably about 25 to 30 miles away, the point of impact. So you get up. Do you grab clothing and blankets or food and water before you get out of there? So I would grab all of those items if I could. But the number one thing for me to do is going to be to provide shelter. Because if I'm talking about any survival situation, exposure is going to get you before food and water. If I can rely on, if I'm going out to my car, I think I can get there and get elsewhere or I can shelter elsewhere then I would go for the food and water if I know that I already have shelter. Okay, so clothing and blankets or food and water before you leave that little diner. And where am I going? I'm just, it's just well, me Well, we're, we're, we're getting there. But okay. right now for this event, you're going to get out of there, but you have a small window of time to grab A or okay, B. Okay, I'm going to go with the A then. Things to help me form a shelter. Absolutely. And you nailed it. I always say it on the show in a survival situation, as you well know, the thing that kills you first or can kill you first is the first thing you need to address. You can go a while without food. You can go a while without water. But right now you're talking about an impact and there's a mushroom clown that's forming. So plus 20 points. Perfect score so far. Shocking. (laughs) You're in outer space. We're playing a game, but hopefully we'll keep this going here. All right. So you get to your vehicle. Are you going to head to the freeway? Or stay on back roads in this Colorado section you're in? I think I'm going to stay on back roads because I'm guessing that everybody else around me is thinking the same thing. Most people are probably just going to head to the highway. It's going to get clogged. At least I'll have more options if I'm on the back roads. Absolutely. You nailed it. I don't even have to explain why you were right because you already did. You'd be looking at gridlock on freeways. People, they're not going to be thinking through it. So... Perfect score. Shocking. Plus 30. Here we go. You turn on your radio while you're in your vehicle, and it reports multiple missile impacts around the United States. Origin is unknown. You look up, and you see a large mushroom cloud in the distance from the direction where that bright light was. Are you going to, A, drive in the opposite direction of that mushroom cloud, or B, drive perpendicular to the left or right of that? I'm going to go perpendicular. Why would you go perpendicular if it's heading toward you? You're right, but I know you've thought this through. (laughs) I don't know. I'm certainly not a mushroom cloud expert, but I know if this is going to be some kind of nuclear fallout, depending on how far it is too, I need to really get somewhere where I can be protected from that. So I would be looking for some kind of structure that's pretty stable, something that's well reinforced, something with metal that might shield But I think if it's going to be coming in that direction, the speed at which it's traveling, I might be able to get out to the outskirts and less density of that material by going perpendicular. You're absolutely right. So the best way to try and describe this for folks is imagine you're in a river and the river is flowing. Are you going to float down with the river? You're still going to be in the river. Or are you going to go left or right perpendicular to get out of the river? That's the same thing you want to do if you have a fallout cloud coming your way. 
plus 50 for the overachiever and hypothetical survival world. Here we go. <laughs> okay. You arrive in a small town in Colorado. Your vehicle conks out on you. So are you going to stay in the vehicle with the windows up, understanding that fallout is approaching? Or are you going to cover your face and get out on foot to try and find some shelter? Stay in the vehicle with the windows up or try and cover your face and get out on foot and look for something else. I would say it depends on if I see anything else around. If I have no hope of anything else, I might stay in the car for some level of shielding. The car is metal. I'll help you out a little bit. Your car conks out and you're kind of in the middle of the street and you're in a small town. So there's stuff around you. Okay. In that case, I'm going to go find some better source of shelter than just that car. Like I said earlier, I think a building that has a lot of metal or is well-reinforced concrete would help shield some radiation as well. Water would really be a great thing. Submerge in, in water, have a kind of water layer, but something with metal and concrete, a more stable building than the car is what I'm going to go for. And, you know, car's not sealed off either. You're still going to get stuff inside even if you close the windows. Absolutely correct. And I'm sorry, I was wrong on the scoring, but now you're a plus 50 for your fifth <laughs> event. So congratulations. Apparently I need to go to math class again. So you decide to cover up your face for obvious reasons and get out of the car. So there is chaos in the streets, as you can imagine, this small town. And you see somebody off to the right in a small home. They're waving at you to come on over. So do you head over to that small home? Or on the left, you see a sporting goods store. Small home on the right, somebody's welcoming you in. Or to the left of the street, there's a sporting goods store. I think I'm going to go to the sporting goods store. The structure's probably more metallic than a small home. There's probably also other items in the sporting goods store that I could use to build another level of shelter within. So I'm going to go for that. I think you could get a lot of useful tools for whatever the next step is as well inside that store. I am going to be out of a job if you keep this up, but that is correct. You head to the sporting store. You said it already, but a small home, there's not much protection. It's probably made out of wood, drywall. You're going to be dealing with alpha, beta, and gamma rays, wood, drywall. That's not going to help. And the caveat that you said, and there's some supplies in there that you might need as we continue on. So you made it inside the sporting goods store. You look out and you're starting to see small particles of fallout dropping onto the street. Do you A, immediately start gathering more supplies, or B, do you strip off your outer layer of clothing? Grab more supplies immediately, or get rid of that outer layer of clothing? Am I already in the store, or do I think I maybe have been exposed? You just made it into the store, yep. Okay, if I see it already, then it's probably already there. So I think I'm going to get rid of the clothes, and then find something else to wear at Sporting Goods Store put some new clothes on in case there's anything peripheral on there, get those away from me so they're not contaminating me and hunkered out. Absolutely, that's a plus 70. And you said it again, back to the first thing that can kill me is the first thing I need to address. In this case, it could be the possibility of radiation exposure and radiation sickness. Folks, if you're gonna do something like this, remember, pill it down and away, not up and over your face. And we've learned something like that about COVID. Keep it away from mucous membranes, mouth, ears, eyes. So here we go. You look out the window, and this is where we get a little weird. What were moments ago lifeless bodies have reanimated, sprung back to life. You've seen enough zombie movies to realize this is really happening. I hate zombies. <laughs> well, unfortunately, they're all around you, and they are heading right toward you as you're in the sporting goods store. So, A, do you get some food and water? 
or weapons and ammo. I'm softballing this one for you. Okay, well, like we just talked about, first thing that's going to kill you, protect yourself against. So I'm going to get weapons and ammo. I'm going to make a barricade, first of all, to try to keep them out. Zombies are pretty slow, so I think I have a little bit of time (laughs) to gather my goods. And there's certainly weapons and ammo in that sporting goods store, so I'm going to need to defend myself. There hasn't been that much time that has passed. Sporting goods store probably also has food and water in there for later anyway. So I'm going to go with the guns and ammo because I really don't like zombies. Absolutely. And you nailed it. Security becomes your very next survival priority. Okay. They're trying to make entrance because they saw you go in the sporting goods store. So you decide after you've grabbed some guns, ammo, weapons, what have you, you're going to head on out the back of the sporting goods store. You see some other zombies back there, and you fight your way through them and get to a parking garage. Are you going to hop in and try and start a brand new Mercedes, or are you going to get in a late model pickup truck? I'm going for the late model because we have had this nuclear disaster. Things could have been fried in a newer vehicle with lots of electronics. So I'm going with the old and reliable. You're absolutely right. You're discussing an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, which can disable a lot of the modern electronic circuitry like you would find in a new Mercedes. But an old 1979 late model pickup, which is also heavy as hell and will help you getting rid of zombies, is the correct choice. You've got one left for a perfect score, and we Uh do not have that many perfect scores here. Uh Uh-oh. So you're in the truck. You're mowing down zombies because, as you said earlier, you hate them. So you're getting some payback here. You need to decide, are you going to head to a small airport you see outside of town, or are you going to head to a military base? Let's not forget what you're really good at doing here. Airports, military base. Okay. We are in a fictitious moment at this point, too, so... Now, though, this is a tricky one because depending on which military base it is, it might also have airplanes, which I could fly. So does the military base also have airplanes? I don't know, but does the military base also have zombies? (laughs) (laughs) Come on, you can do this. Stick with your gut. If this was your movie, you were starring in it, how would you want the end to be? Okay, well... I'm going to think, you said a small airport. So I've flown, I actually got my pilot's license from a small airport way before I was an astronaut. Usually there are not many people around. Military base is going to be loaded with a bunch of buff soldiers that might now be zombies. So I'm going to go to the small airport. There's going to be fewer people and there are airplanes that I can fly and I'm getting out of there. Yes, and you fly into the sunset and you land on an island and nobody's there and it's all yours. Congratulations, 100 points. Perfect score. All right. Dr. Mir, I'm out of a job here. So if you get tired of this whole NASA thing, I guess you can take over my podcast. But that was outstanding. Thank you so much. I hope that was fun for you. We'd like to do something. I think they call it the same thing at NASA, an AAR, an after action review. Is there anything that maybe you learned in this that maybe you didn't know? No, or just I mean, uh, takeaway. That's a good review. I never really thought realistically about what I would do with zombies. So <laughs> that was a first. But yeah, I mean, they're really useful things to think about because generally I would say, especially since I have had kind of some level of survival training, trusting your instincts is an important thing to do. Trusting your instincts and not being an impulsive. So even though you got to think about it a little bit through, but I think by trusting my instincts, I stuck with those answers that were my first instinct. So it worked out. 
Uh, absolutely. And the first instinct is usually the right one. I cannot thank you enough for your time. I am so incredibly impressed by what you're doing and you're just getting started. We're all rooting for you to have the first female footprint on moon and Mars. Why not both? Right. But thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks so much, Cade. Wonderful being on your show. Hey folks, the best way to support our show is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. You can also check out our YouTube channel for video content of all of our episodes. So ring that bell to subscribe. And if you have any survival questions you want answered, just leave it in the comments so you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunette.